Hello, fellow followers of Christ, and welcome to the show that introduces you to the men and women behind history's greatest works of literature. Come along every week as we explore these renowned authors, the times and genre in which they wrote, why scholars praise their writing, and how we as Catholics should read and understand their works. I'm Joseph Pierce, and this is The Authority. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Authority, where we are going to be looking at another anonymous poet, an author uh, uh, about whom we know very little, but who wrote one of the most important poems of the uh, me medieval era in English, uh, the Arthurian romance Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, so we're going to be looking at this. Say, we, we, we don't know much about him except that the, he was writing in the Mercian or Mercian dialect. So that's the West Midlands. Um, he's a contemporary of Geoffrey Chaucer and, 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 and Chaucer will be uh, the authority that we will be discussing the next episode. So he's a contemporary of Chaucer, so living in the late 1300s, so the 14th century. Um, but whereas Chaucer is based in London and is associated with 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 uh, the court and uh, and diplomacy uh, and should we say the inner uh, inner corridors of power, and therefore the Chaucer is very open to the new ideas in poetry. Uh, he's speaking an English uh, which is much more Frenchified. We'll talk about the well. Perhaps we'll do that now. Um, that the English language uh, went through a transformation with the Norman Conquest in 1066. So we looked at a few episodes back at, at the Beowulf poet, and uh, uh, that was Anglo-Saxon England from when the from when the Romans left in the fifth century to, to the Norman Conquest in 1066. Well, the Normans were, as as their name would suggest, Norse men. Uh, so they were they were Vikings from 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 uh, from, the, from Scandinavia. But they settled in what is now called Normandy in 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 northern France. And uh, over a period of generations, uh, no longer spoke Old Norse and and spoke French. So by the time that the Normans invaded England in 1066, they were French speaking. So the, what happened after that is that the language of court, the language of nobility, the language of the aristocracy, because the Norman aristocrats replaced the Anglo-Saxon aristocrats for the most part. So that the, the language of the higher echelons of society became French. And it was only, if you like, the lower echelons of society, the peasants and the common folk who still spoke English, you know, the Anglo-Saxon Old English, and it would actually be uh, around the time of the Seguin poet and Chaucer, late 1300s, before an official opening of Parliament was done in English, not in French. So for the, there was 300 years of this, if you like, two-tier language system. Chaucer is Anglo-Saxon by descent, not French. But um, uh, uh, he uh, speaks a, a, a version of English where these two languages are now melding. So Chaucerian English is, is this melding of the Latin and French uh, and the Germanic English uh, halves of the language coming together. And that's why Chaucer is called the founder of English 
poetry and even sometimes the founder of the English language or the father of the English language or the father of English poetry. We'll talk about that perhaps more next week when we get to Chaucer. However, away from London, away from court, um, uh, there, the, 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 the different dialects were much more Anglo-Saxon. So whereas we can read Chaucer, perhaps with difficulty, but a modern English speaker can read and understand Chaucer with a modicum of effort. We cannot read uh, the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight poem, even though it was written at around the same time, which is why the the, uh, the edition that I have here is translated by a certain J.R.R. Tolkien uh, from the Middle English of uh of of the time which is uh again much more rustic uh, much more di of a west country west midlands dialect than chaucer's proper spoken or written english so uh, the other thing about it is that um because it's the backwoods in some sense it's also backwood in the sense that uh, it has much more in common than the, the Anglo-Saxon poetry, such as Beowulf that we looked at, uh, where uh, the poem is not written with regular uh, meter and rhyme as per the, the fashion in court and the fashion of the Renaissance uh, in Europe, but as with the Anglo-Saxons, with alliter alliterative uh, uh, syllables uh, and stresses rather than countersyllables and rhyme schemes. So it's not so much about the number of syllables per line as the number of stresses per line. There's a lot of emphasis upon alliteration rather than rhyme. So th this is a different style. It has much more in common with the Anglo-Saxon past because this is closer to the Anglo-Saxon culture than the Frenchified culture of London. Um, all right, so then we're going to go into the poem to see again how profoundly Christian this poem is. Uh, and we also see how it's part of a living heritage of Western civilization. So the poem begins with uh, a connection with ancient Troy. So he see the poet keeping the tradition, uh, obviously the Iliad's about Troy, the Odyssey's about Troy, uh, and then um, uh, the Aeneid, by Virgil is about Troy, so it's as if we go, uh, we need to, and, and there's even allusions to it in, in, in Beowulf. So, so let's look at this how the poem starts. When the siege and the assault had ceased at Troy, and the fortress fed in flame to firebrands and ashes, the traitor who the contrivance of treason there fashioned was tried for his treachery, the most true upon earth. It was Aeneas, the noble and his renowned kindred, who then laid under them lands and lords became of well nigh all the wealth in the western isles. When royal Romulus to Rome his road had taken, in great pomp and pride he peopled it first and named it with his own name, yet now it bears. So this is a poem actually about King Arthur's court. But he, 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 it begins with connecting um, uh, this poem, or basically this day and age, um, with the past. So with Troy, with, uh, with Aeneas, uh, and then through Aeneas's descendant with Remus and Romulus, with the founding of Rome. So this whole work is part of that 
enfranchisement of the dead, the, the, so the, the, the uh, proxy of the dead, the enfranchisement of the unborn, this living tradition of Western civilization, that this Arthurian poem about King Arthur in England begins with a reference to Troy, to the very roots of Western civilization, uh, and by implication, Homer, and by, uh, by uh, uh, explication, a reference to the Aeneid. Uh, of Virgil. So we have this living legacy connecting Aeneas to Arthur. Now, it, the story begins, and we talked about this uh, when we talked about the Beowulf poem uh, and in Dante, um, that how dates are used to signify. So in, in Dante's Divine Comedy, of course, you know, that, that the, the, the story begins on Holy Thursday, Dante descends into hell on Good Friday. He ascends out of hell uh, in, into the starlight of God's creation at the foot of Mount Purgatory on the morning of Easter Sunday, and then ascends uh, Mount Purgatory uh, and then into heaven during the Easter octave. Well, here the story begins at Christmas tide and the turning of a new year. So again, we we have a we're already if we got to get our allegorical antennae twitching, thinking okay whether well, he's the, 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 there's it's probably a significant to the, 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 what's happening in the story and, the, and the, the, the liturgical year and the theological significance of the liturgical year. Now, the, the King Arthur's court in the middle of these festive Christmas, New Year celebrations are visited by this mysterious stranger, the Green Knight, who is described uh, in Tolkien's translation as the mightiest on Middle-earth. Um, again, the word Middle Earth that Tolkien uses goes back uh, to, uh, to 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 uh, these early times. Um, the Green Knight accepts a challenge. Sorry, the Green Green Knight Green Knight announces a challenge to King Arthur's court or to King Arthur and his court by extension that he would uh, allow his head to be laid to be cut or, or to be struck by an axe. Uh, and then if that wasn't fatal, then the, the whoever does it would have to lay his head to be cut off by the axe. So it's a trial to the death, it would seem. And there's something weird about this, uh, this, this Green Knight, and everyone is fearful of, uh, of, 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 of taking up the challenge because they, they sense some magic involved, some some mystery, uh, something supernatural. So that even you know, the bold knights of King Arthur's round table uh, are, are too cowardly. And in the end, uh, uh, King Arthur himself says, well, I will take up the challenge. And it's then that Sir Gawain, in his humility, accepts the challenge. And this is worth reading. Um, he says, it's unwitting that the king should, 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 should face a challenge when he's got these knights. He says, I am the weakest, I am aware, and in wit feeblest, and the least loss if I live not, if one would learn the truth. So we hear Sir Gawain here humbling himself. This is a man who uh, uh, has humility, who sees himself, I'm the weakest, I'm, not, I'm far from the smartest, on the contrary, probably the dumbest. And therefore, I'm the one that would be least missed. I'll be the least lost if, should, should I die uh, by accepting his challenge. So he, it's, it's his loyalty to his king and his humility 
which if you like is his defining characteristic as the story begins and then the magic does begin because Sir Gawain strikes truly with the axe and the green knight's head comes tumbling off rolling across the floor and has even moved even uh, descriptions of the head being sort of kicked away like a football by as it rolls across the floor by people um but then the headless green knight this mysterious supernatural knight walks over and picks up his head i don't know how he managed to see where it was it's <laughs> a, a quibble um and then and then holding his head in his hand he basically says that okay i fulfill my side my, my side of the deal now your side is that you will have to present yourself to me this time next year um for, for to basically to put your head on the block for me to use my axe on your head so then so gawain lives for the whole of that year knowing that the end of the year this is the fate that he uh must uh, that awaits him and then more significance uh it's on so Gawain begs to leave to go on his quest to find the Green Knight because he doesn't even know where the Green Knight is. It's going to be like, like looking for the Holy Grail. You've got to find the, uh, the the palace, the home of the Green Knight. Uh, but he begs to leave on All Hallows, in other words, All Saints Day. So again, significance, right? This story begins at Christmas, a new year. Uh, he's going to set off on his quest on All Saints Day where he asked to leave on All Saints Day, but he leaves the next day, having gone to, goes to Holy Mass before he sets off. So it's a pilgrimage. Uh, he sets off on the quest, which is also a pilgrimage, as God will my guide on All Souls Day. So All Saints is where we commemorate the canonized saints in heaven. All Souls is where we we uh, commemorate the souls in purgatory, right? The souls that are that, that died in sin and on our need of our prayers uh, and of God's mercy. So th the quest is somehow connected to a purgatorial cleansing uh, of sin. Then we have, uh, he wears uh, uh, on his shield uh, a pentangle, which is also known as the endless knot or the eternity in five wounds. And I want to look at some of the significance of that. So this is um, part 28. It's, it's broken up into sections. I want you to take note of the symbolism here, the theology of it, of the symbolism of the pentangle. First faultless was he found in his five senses. And next in his five fingers, he failed at no time. And firmly on the five wounds, capital F, capital W, the five wounds of Christ. So all this number symbolism again, which we see in Beowulf. All his faith was set that Christ received on the cross, as the creed tells us. And wherever the brave man into battle was come, on this beyond all things was his earnest thought that ever from the five joys, capital F, capital J, all his valour he gained, that to heaven's courteous queen once came from her child. So the five joys of Mary. For which cause the knight had in comely wise on the inner side of his shield her image depainted, that when he cast his eyes thither, his courage never fails. When he holds his shield up in combat, he sees the face, the face of the Blessed Virgin staring at him. The fifth five that was used, as I find by this night, 
was free giving and friendliness first before all and chastity and chivalry ever changeless and straight and piety surpassing all points. So the five virtues here, free giving, so self-sacrifice, friendliness, so love, uh, cha chastity, right, if, I said, if I said charity, I meant chastity, uh, chivalry, of course he wouldn't be a knight without chivalry, and piety, free giving, friendliness, chastity, chivalry, and piety, surpassing all points. These perfect five were hasped upon him harder than on any man else. Now these five series in sooth were fastened on this night, and each was knit with another and had no ending, but were fixed at five points that failed not at all, coincided in no line, nor sundered either, nor not ending in any angle anywhere as I discover. Wherever the process was put in play or passed to an end. In other words, this endless knot is eternal. These virtues point to eternity. Therefore, on his shining shield was shaped now this knot, royally with red jewels upon red gold set. This is the pure pentangle, as people of learning have taught. Now Gawain in brave array, his lance at last hath caught. He gave them all good day, forevermore as he thought. In other words, he expects this to be a fatal quest uh, in which he will die at the end of it. But you see the, the, the holiness with which he sets out on the quest, connected the five wounds of Christ, the five joys of Mary, these five life-giving virtues, they're all signified by the endless knot of eternity. As he's looking for the green, green Knight, sets out on All Souls Day, he's been wandering all over England and Wales looking for the Green Knight. He's in North Wales in a wilderness, a desert. And when is this? During Advent. All right. And we sometimes forget in our modern day and age that Advent's a, a season of penitence, a penitential season like Lent. So he's passing through this season of, uh, of penance and he can't, he, he can't find the Green Knight's. Uh, um, palace anywhere and he prays and he prays and he prays but his prayer is not answered uh on until christmas eve in other words the answering of a prayer of the prayer is a christmas gift and then he sees this uh, appearing from nowhere this castle this palace and when he arrives at the door the gate the line is yes by peter quoth the porter so that you had a gatekeeper who who uh, swears by St. Peter. So it, it's a connection here with St. Peter's gate. There's something about entering this palace, which is like entering heaven. Remember, it's Christmas Day now, a time of joy. The penitential season is over. And then the baron, the, the lord of the manor, makes a mysterious wager with him. He's going to go out and, and, and give to, uh, he's going to go out hunting and give to Gawain whatever he catches on his hunt uh, and while he's away Gawain has to give him whatever he gets and while he's away the baron's wife tempts him tempts him particularly uh, uh, to, inch, to to break his vow of chastity um, and she's beautiful and you know in, and she comes into his room and so he has to use uh, all of his uh, powers of virtue uh, assisted no doubt by grace 
to resist this beautiful temptress who tries to, to, to tempt him to acts of unchastity. But the third temptation is much more subtle. So for first two temp t temptations, she tries fail. She can't get him to, to uh, commit uh, an adulterous act with her. But this time she offers him a gift. It's a green girdle or green kirtle, uh, you know, garment. that If he wears, it will protect him from all harm. Bearing in mind he's expecting at some point to meet the Green Knight and to have his head cut off, <laughs> he succumbs to this temptation, this lucky talisman that will preserve his life. So the third temptation is subtle. It's not conceit. No, not the pride of the, of the lady thinking she's so beautiful that, uh, that she can seduce the man, but deceit, all right? She's deceiving him. For it is my weed, in other words, my clothing, that thou wearest, that very woven girdle, so this is the this is the uh, the the the, uh, the Green Knight re revealing himself as actually the Baron in disguise, and he set uh, the temptation was set by the Green Knight. His wife was playing along uh, with him. Um, that very well, my own wife is it awarded thee. I what well indeed. Now I'm aware of thy kisses and thy courteous ways, and of thy wooing by by my wife. I worked that myself. I set that up. It was a setup. I sent her to test thee, and thou seems to me truly the fair knight most faultless that e'er foot set on earth. You passed that test beautifully, with great virtue, great sanctity, great chivalry, chastity. Um, as a pearl, than white peas is prized more highly. So, so is Gawain in good faith and other gallant knights. But in this you lacked, sir, a little, and of loyalty came short. But that was for no artful wickedness, not for wooing either, but because you loved your own life, the less do I blame you. All right, so how does the Green Knight respond to the fact that he's cheated in some way, right, by wearing this, this green girdle, this green kirtle? The other stern knight in the study then stood a long while. In such grief and disgust he had a, a grew in his heart, all the blood from his breast in his blush mingled, and he shrank into himself with shame at his speech, at that speech. The first words on that field that he found then to say were, Cursed be ye, coveting, and cowardice also. So cursed be coveting something, so coveting this gift, because it might save his own neck literally his own neck, uh, and cowardice, all right? Um, it was cowardice that, that got him to accept this gift. In you is vileness and vice that virtue destroyeth. He took then the treacherous thing and untying the knot, fiercely flung he the belt at the feet of the knight. See there the falsifier and foul be its fate. Through care for thy blow cowardice brought me for, 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 for care for thy blow, fear of having my head chopped off. Cowardice brought me to consent to coveting, to, to wanting this. My true kind to forsake, which is free hand and faithful word that are fitting to knights. Now I am faulty and false, who afraid have been ever of treachery and troth breach, breaking of promises. The two now my curse may bear, I've done both. I confess, sir, here to you, all faulty has been my fare, 
let me gain your grace anew, and after I will beware. Um, so this, this again, more humility, a humble acceptance of his guilt in being seduced by cowardice to covet the talisman that might save his neck. Um, and then uh, immediately after that, we have this confession. And again, I have to read it because it's, 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 the, it's the sacrament of confession that's been talked about here. Then the other man laughed and lightly answered, I hold it healed beyond doubt. You're forgiven. The harm that I had, thou hast confessed thee so clean and acknowledged thine errors and has the penance plain to see from the point of my blade. He just nicks him, just gives him a little scratch by way of token. That I hold thee purged of that debt, cleansed, made as pure and as clean as hadst thou done no ill deed since the day thou wert born. And I give thee, sir, the girdle with gold at its hems. I give it back to you as a gift now, the girdle that you took. For it is green like my gown. So, Sir Gawain, you may think of this our contest when in the throng thou walkest among the princes of high praise. Twill be a plain reminder of the chance of the green chapel between chivalrous knights. And now you shall in this new year. So what's happening is happening on new year, right? A day of renewal. During the Christmas season, the 12 days of Christmas, that, uh, that he is being purged of his sin and is w w uh, washed white of the snow. He's making a clean start. Um, Come anon to my house and in our revels, the rest of this rich season shall go. The Lord pressed him hard to wend and said, my wife, I know we, we soon shall make your friend who was your bitter foe. So get to know my wife as she really is not as someone who's who's testing you um and then how does it end i'm going to read this as well and then we'll wrap up um this is section 101 lo lord he said at last and the lace handled and the lace handled this is the band for this for this a rebuke i bear in my neck this little scar on my neck is a rebuke for the fact that i took this to save my own skin this is the grief and disgrace i have not i have got for myself from the covetousness and cowardice that overcame me there this is the token of troth breach that i am direct direct detected in and needs must wear it while in the world i remain so he now wears it as a token of shame a token of humility um a token of his own sinfulness um and then further down Every knight of the Brotherhood, a Baldrick should have a band of bright green obliquely about him, and this for love of that knight as a livery should wear. So, okay, all the other knights of the round table will wear it as well in solidarity. Why? Because they're all sinners, right? None of them are perfect. So this is a token, a sign of their own sinfulness, that they're not perfect. In this sense, we can see the green girdle the green kirtle as uh as a, as a crucifix right that which we, when we look at it, it reminds us of our own sinfulness our own worthiness our own need for for christ's grace and intercession and it the the the, uh, the the poem ends with to his bliss us bring who bore the crown of thorns on brow in other words may, may the christ who wore the crown of thorns for our own covetousness and cowardice and sinfulness, may he bring us to his bliss. May he bring us to heaven. That's uh, 
marvellous, profoundly Catholic poem. The final prayer is to a merciful God on behalf of miserable sinners. And as we see how the allegory of dates is used by, has been used by Dante already and will be used by Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us in this episode of The Authority, where we've looked at the author of the poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Please do join me next time as we turn our attention to another great authority, the authority of Geoffrey Chaucer. Until then, goodbye and God bless. This has been an episode of The Authority with Joseph Pierce, brought to you by TAN. For updates on new episodes and to support The Authority and other great free content, visit theauthoritypodcast.com to subscribe and use coupon code AUTHORITY25 to get 25% off your next order, including books, audiobooks, and video courses by Joseph Pierce on literary giants such as Tolkien, Chesterton, Lewis, Shakespeare, and Belloc as well as Tan's extensive catalog of content from the saints and great spiritual masters to strengthen your faith and interior life. To follow Joseph and support his work, check out his blog and sign up for email updates and exclusive content at jpierce.co. And thanks for listening.